This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we have two remarkable men on Dreamland. We're going to be talking to Dr. Raymond Moody and his close friend and frequent co-author, Paul Perry, about life after life. Of course, Raymond Moody, in 1975, published his groundbreaking book, Life After Life, and coined the phrase, near-death experience, which became part of our culture. They have a new book out together called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife, uh, with a foreword by Eben Alexander, who's also been on Dreamland, of course. And I welcome Raymond back after many years. I think uh, Raymond was last on when we were a live show in uh, a radio show back in the days when radio existed. Which is That's right. <laughs> in any case, welcome <laughs> to Dreamland, both of you. I'm so glad you're with me. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's so good to be with you again, too. Well, good. I'm glad. All right. Well, this is this is a step ahead, proof of life after life. Right. Now, of course, you know, you're talking to someone who has uh, been a, uh, I mean, my wife had a near-death experience in 2004 and came back uh, in, after her death in 2015 in a ways that were not it was not possible to deny but my listeners know all about that what they don't know is why this book is called proof of life after life coming from somebody who would often say i don't have i don't know about the afterlife i know that that about a near death experience but not the afterlife something major has changed raymond what is it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's getting older, Whitley. You know, I was, before I went to medical school, I was a professor of philosophy and logic. And I was, logic is, you know, since the time I was a kid, it's one of my favorite subjects. And uh, the notion of proof comes from logic. Okay. And so when I first started interviewing people with these experiences back in the 60s and then pretty soon people are coming up to me and Raymond, is there any proof? Okay. And so I, I went back to Bertrand Russell and Gottlob Frege and Wittgenstein and, and, and the Principia Mathematica. I mean, you know, and I, I never related. And so what I finally realized is that the average person who asked me whether there's a where we whether we have proof of an afterlife is somebody who's not interested in symbolic logic like I am, but who is typically, as you would know, Whitley, has lost a loved one to death or are facing death themselves or just in midlife having this philosophical awakening. And so where I have come to it, Whitley, is a long process. I fought this the whole way because, you know, the best way of inquiry is to try to knock things down, not to support them, because, you you know, what you end up with is you can be more, it's more reliable, right? And so I, ne I never believed that thing about, oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain, because one of my own professors of medicine, 
when I first went to medical school, told me about her experience when she was unsuccessfully trying to resuscitate her mother. And as her mother was dying, she herself, this physician, said that she got out of her body. She saw the scene from above. She saw her mother now in spirit form. She saw the her mother recede into this tunnel in light with the relatives coming forward and so on. And, and subsequently, hundreds of people like that who were not ill or injured themselves, but who were there at the death of someone else. And that as that person was dying, the bystander had all of these elements that we think of as a near-death experience. Therefore, I knew from the very beginning that this is not oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? It's because if the bystanders who are not ill or injured have the same experience, well, you know, it's something else. But that does the fact that it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain doesn't mean that therefore it is an afterlife. And where my long process of fighting this, because it's still very counterintuitive to me, Whitley, was, you know, trying to think of all the reasons against it. And I just, I'll tell you the truth, I just gave up. I, cu- I can't think my way out of it. You mentioned Eben Alexander, and, and you probably know of um Oh, sure. I've interviewed Eben. Yeah. And probably know also of Anthony Chicoria, the, the, uh, orthopedic doctor in New York who had the near-death experience. And, and my point is I've got a lot of medical friends whose absolute judgment, I was absolutely trust if something, heaven forbid, were to happen to me. And these medical friends of mine who have had a near-death experiences, and they all, you know, unanimously say that far from being, you know, dreamlike, that this experience was more real than what you and I are experiencing right now. More real than real is what they say. So where I have come is I've just gotten to the point where I can't think my way out of it. So to my utter astonishment, there is an afterlife. And when people ask me this, what I have finally figured out that the average person wants to know when they ask me about proof is this. They are asking, Raymond, is it a rational thing to expect and anticipate that there is an afterlife? And I say, absolutely it is. And not only that, but technical developments in the field of logic and how to think about thinking, which are just, you know, would be boring to the average person who's interested in the afterlife. But they're interesting to me. And so from that point of view, I can say, too, yeah, sure. The classical philosophical objections to the question of an afterlife have now been overcome logically. So the way I put it together is to my utter astonishment, like I say, it's just, there's an afterlife. I give up. <laughs> I, mean, I really have asked people, you know, tell me if it's not an afterlife, what is it? <laughs> I give up. <laughs> I give. We're going to take a little break now. Uh, our first break. We're going to. We're talking to Paul Perry and Raymond Moody about proof of life after life. We'll be right back. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars, or is it also somewhere else? Is it 
in us, in you, unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com There's no place like it in the world. Who are they? Why are they here? What do they want with us? Why is it all so secret? All of these questions are explored in my new book, Them, in an entirely new way. What do Close Encounter reports tell us about what the visitors want with us? What is the military's experience? And can our memories be trusted? Can anything be trusted? Them answers all of these questions in a totally new way. It's available in hardcover, softcover, as a Kindle, and as an audiobook. Read by me. Get them today, and you can get it from the unknowncountry.com store, signed by me. We're talking to Paul Perry and Raymond Moody, the co-authors of Proof of Life After Life. And Paul, I would like to ask you why you signed on for this. Uh, I've seen some of your documentaries, and folks, by the way, uh, do go to Paul Perry Productions, and you can follow up with Paul's work, because among other things, not only is he a prolific author and co-author, he's also a fabulous documentary filmmaker. Thanks, though. Yeah. So tell us, how did you, how, why did you sign on to Proof of Life After Life, which is, after all, a step beyond where Raymond and you have been all along? Well, you know, for, for years now, I mean, I've worked together with Raymond for 33 years, and Raymond has been working, studying near-death experiences for at least 20 years more than that. And uh, uh, we realized early on at least I realized early on in my dealing with Raymond when I wrote The Light Beyond, that uh, uh, near-death experiences are subjective experiences, meaning that only the person who has or has them can actually experience it, that anything beyond that is would be secondhand and not subjective. But we also realized that in studying all the near-death experiences that we did, there was a category that was mixed in that was almost like a treated like kind of a secret uh, uh, category of near-death experiences called shared death experiences. And the shared death experience, as, as Raymond indicated earlier, is an objective form of near-death experience. What that means is, is that a person who uh, is a bystander to someone's death is suddenly tapped in to their to their uh, the events of their death experience so you'll have people who are like there's precognitive experiences in which someone might wake up in the middle of the night and they'll see uh somebody a friend a loved one standing at the end of the bed and they'll say uh, uh i'm i'm dying and i wanted you to know i've died i've died and that is a shared death experience is that this is someone who dies, in this case, 
<clears throat> unexpectedly. And they show up to tell to tell their friends about uh, the fact that they've passed away. There's other types of shared death experiences, but you but you get the idea through that. Oh, sure. I've, yeah. I've had that in my own life. Uh, my wife uh, not only had a near-death experience in 2004, when it came time for her to pass away, it was very much a shared experience because she said, we were, my son and daughter-in-law and I were in the, we're, were eating dinner and she was very deep in the next room. And mm -hmm. we knew that she would not be with us for very long. And she had already said in my daughter-in-law's head, she, my daughter-in-law about an hour before had heard, I want to die in red pajamas. <laughs> and she jumped up and rushed out to the store and bought a pair of red pajamas. And we had put her in the red pajamas. Wow. And then, but that was Anne testing to see whether or not she was getting through. I, my wife was very skilled at all of this and <laughs> many, she was a really remarkable human being. But then she says in my head, I'm dying right now, witty. And I ran in to the bedroom, lay down beside her, put my hand on her chest. Her heart beat seven times and stopped. And that was Annie's passing. And I'm not, my listeners already know all this story and it's in my book, Afterlife Revolution. So we're not going to go there right now. Sure. What I want to explore next is this question of, uh, uh, of anesthesia. Because I've read quite a bit about anesthesia being proof that the, the fact that we are turned off, proof that there is no afterlife. So could either or both of you talk talk to this question of anesthesia and how whether or not it is indeed what the skeptics are saying? This. <laughs> you know, Willie, I just, you know, the real thing we're dealing here is with a philosophical point of view or theory called epiphenomenalism, which is the theory that there is no independent reality to consciousness, but that the only reality is the material substance of the brain and the electrochemical reactions to it. And as much as there's a people who just have that as their faith, as you know, and, you know, and, you know, they can't philosophically think to realize enough to realize that that is totally unprovable. Right. It's it's just as you can say with just as much rigor that as David Hume once said, you know, the great skeptic of all skeptics said, um, as to the impressions which arise from the senses, in my opinion, it is utterly impossible for reason to decide whether they arise from the object, like the epiphenomenalist thing, or from the creative power of our minds, or from our author of our being. And the real skeptic, I don't know. Okay, so... And where I've come to is, man, my th understanding of consciousness, um, Whitley, is that I think that one thing that has really been forgotten about it or not paid attention to, uh, maybe because of Descartes in the long run, but it is the plain fact that human consciousness 
is a storytelling instrument. Hmm. The um, uh, I think it's called the Kulikov effect. Cinematographers say if you take any two random objects, like a tube of ointment and a, a telephone, and you present them in sequence to the mind, then the mind automatically starts weaving a story to connect them. And so, oh, yeah, there, it, there's a lot about that in cinematography. Yeah. Uh, I went to film school and we studied that, that, that effect very carefully. Go ahead. And so, you know, in the consciousness is story. And, and, you know, the David Hume, the great skeptic in his essay on the afterlife, where he said, you know, it's, it's logically incomprehensible. Nonetheless said, he said, you know, I think the only kind of view of the afterlife that a rational person could entertain would be the reincarnation. And he didn't say why, but, you know, Hume was a historian. And I figure probably what was going on was that as a historian, historians realized the essential, you know, the importance of narrative in the human experience. And so I think that, you know, it's... um we're all asleep to some degree. I know I am. But, um, you know, scientism and, and epiphenomenalism all around, that's just a dream. <laughs> but they don't realize it's just a dream. <laughs> the, the reality, is, you know, is, is, is far more complicated than, um, than epiphenomenalism can ever imagine. Now, one of the arguments, of course, is that the scientific method can't be used in in this in in this type of study. There you go. Because there's no measurable phenomenon to. But I wonder if that's actually true at this point. I I've read. Uh, wasn't there an article in the Scientific American a few years ago about the fact that there were changes in the brain? It, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Could either of you speak to that? Well, that's a, a recent study from, uh, well, Sam Parnia, uh, who was looking at how how deep a person could go into death and still come back. And uh, in some of the cases, he had people who had no brain waves for over an hour. Yet they were still, according to the, uh, and then then that all started up again. They all started to experience consciousness internally and, and eventually, some of them externally if they survive. Uh, so there's been a lot of measurable research. There's been, let's put it this way, some measurable research done on this. But I but I also think that stories are actually measurable in their own way. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It, you can't get a proof from the stories, but you can reformat your mind to think about the stories in a new way. But you can also get consistency of experience. Yeah, I think you know, Willie. I I taught logic and epistemology. One of the great fallacies in the whole American spirit is scientism. And we taught epistemology, which is theory of knowledge, right? And so the first couple of days I'd ask the kids, what do you think knowledge is? Well, even the ones who were religious fundamentalists, you know, what they'd come up with is, well, knowledge is science. What does that mean? Well, eventually they'd get up the formulation that 
scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, is what they'd say. And then I'd write that on the board. Scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'd say, is that what you think? And they'd say, yeah. And so I'd draw a rectangle around it and I'd point to it. Well, how do you know that? And there's only two possibilities. Number one, you can say um, scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. And I know that by scientific method is a is re- reasoning in a circle. But the other option that scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, and I know that by philosophy or history or literary theory or the law or you name it, that's a self-contradiction. And my point is, you know, the, the, these, the, the parapsychological psycho, psychical research wing never got around to asking the preliminary question what kind of question is the question of life after death? They went right to, oh, it's got to be a scientific question, right? And that, you know, looks, look where they've gotten with that. The question of life after death is a is not yet a scientific question because just as you were saying, Whitley, what in the world, what kind of observation would you make? To, it's, it's, and so what they end up saying is, oh, we got to, thing he the medium thing new things the medium couldn't possibly have known about my grand well he think about it that sentence that we hear all the time the medium new things about grandma that the medium couldn't possibly have known isn't that a self-contradiction yes it is so what i'm saying is we are really on the verge of a whole new way of looking at the afterlife. And it's already started happening, but we can actually reformat our minds to think logically in entirely new ways about the question of life after death. So that when subsequently we happen to have a near death experience, we'll come back and we'll no longer have to say, you know, I just have no words or blah, blah, blah. Well, they'll have a whole new way of, talking about it and explaining it and it's already happened by the way but but i won't get into that but we need to take a little break first and then we will get into it because that's why we're here uh we're talking to paul perry and raymond moody their new book proof of life after life seven reasons to believe there is an afterlife most interesting we'll be right back i'd like to tell you a wonderful story It's a story about my wife, Anne. She passed on in 2015, an hour after she died. She began to come back. Now she's with us, and you can learn more about this and what it means to you and what it can mean to you so much more than you may think. Get the afterlife revolution. Get it today. You can read it on Kindle, as a book, You can listen to me reading it as an audio book. It's a beautiful journey into a new way of understanding death and life. And yes, afterlife. 
there's a reason that Dr. Gary Schwartz, one of the great afterlife investigators in the world, says it's among the most convincing cases he has ever encountered. Afterlife revolution. Don't miss it. Unknowncountry.com. It's huge. It's much more than just a Whitley Strieber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds. My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago. Whitley Strieber audiobooks, communion, transformation, the secret school, breakthrough, majestic, and so much more powerful meditations. But more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real, and it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way. This is what being a member of Unknown Country is about. So go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today. Join us and join, very frankly, the future. We're talking to Raymond Moody and Paul Perry about their new book, Proof of Life After Life. Uh, we were discussing the issue of scientism and science prior to our brief break. For those who you who were on the free feed, I'll just remind you. And, you know, I reflect, I must reflect that uh, science can use its method to prove, to prove the, the way phenomena that it can detect function, but not that it can't detect, but that isn't necessarily all that that's not the end of everything because there are many things that, for example, uh, the scientific method could not have been used in 1850 to prove the existence of radio because they couldn't detect it. That doesn't mean it wasn't there because it was right. now we're under, we're, I would like to now move to this light that, that we talk about and, and that that is experienced by near-death experiencers, this movement into the light. And I would like to ask you both to comment on the idea that this light itself may be conscious, that this transfer, it, it, it may be conscious. You know, you said at some point, Raymond, a very interesting thing 
that we may not know what the afterlife is like. We have made a lot of assumptions about it, but we have no reason to know. Tell us a little bit about, Paul, if you will, first, your thoughts about the light and what it may mean and what it may be, and then we'll ask Raymond to do the same. Well, several years ago, I was involved in uh, a study in Seattle, actually, called the Transformation Study. And what we did was we looked at, uh, and this is we being a number of doctors, psychologists, uh, and anesthesiologists, uh, on and on. And we looked at the type, the type and the duration of change uh, caused by a near-death experience. And we did that by examining uh, everything from children who had had experiences uh, to uh, adults and elder adults as well. And we found that the most transforming aspect of a near-death experience is the light, that, that people who had the most long-term effect of their near-death experience always linked it to a, a powerful exposure to this light. And they would carry it further by saying that uh, they would call the light God or Jesus or Muhammad, or some even called it Santa Claus. But but they said that there was, number one, they could never really see an individual in the light, but it's just how their mind perceived it. And it was also the sense that as soon as they were exposed to the light, they were exposed to a number of other things as well, including a sense of, uh, of uh, universal knowledge, that they were somehow downloaded, if you will, with universal knowledge. And... And they said, kids would say, well, the light is where all the good things is. I mean, that was quoted uh, many times from children, that all the good things are in the light. I didn't know what was, I didn't know who was in there, but but it was it was full of good things. And I think that's uh, definitely uh, an indication that the life, that the light is the most transforming aspect of a near-death experience. Uh, Raymond, you are... You are a believer in God as a separate entity from us, but you've also said that we don't know what the afterlife is actually like, that it may be very different from our assumptions. And I relate this to the fact that if you become a being of light, you're going to be living by entirely different laws than we live in the yes. world. There you go. That's so, a, yeah, so speak and, about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't get too fussy about the exact details because what everybody tells me and, and tells you too is that really there are no words, right? And and so because that's the most common thing people say, no matter how articulate they are, I just don't have the words to describe this. And so where I have come just in my quest, uh, you know, I've never been religious per se, but I have a relationship with God is, is how I like to put it. And um, where I have come with it, Whitley, is sort of taken up on that I, idea we were talking about before, the nation, the nature of your consciousness is story or narrative. And in the life review, time stands still and you see everything you've ever done, not just from your point of view, but from the point of view of the other people with whom you've interacted, right? And so think about it. At that moment, you are that person. 
right? You are in the, your life review. You are the other person. You take that point of view. And so where I put this all together is it's like that great mystic. Uh, oh, gosh, what was his name? Um, Meister Eckhart said. Oh, yes. His work um, I know well. Yeah. And he said, um, the eyes with which I see God are the same eyes with which God sees me. And that's where I've come to it. It's like, I think it's another person said, it's like, we're like the fingertips of God. And, um, and so, you know, that's where I've come on it. I think that it's, it's like where I've come in my thinking and forced into it because the things I heard, I, but I, um, I gather that, you know, we live this story and then we die and we go through some incomprehensible process and then we're back on some other story. And personally, I hope and I bet you do, too, that that Giordano Bruno was right, who was burned alive for saying in 1600 that that reincarnation is not just here on this planet. But the reincarnation takes place between the worlds and his great, you know, the infinite universe and worlds that he wrote. One of the most brilliant people who ever lived. I've read his treatise on memory and it's yeah. extraordinary. You can remember anything if you un understand his method. Uh, you know, you, you, you said something, I think, very extraordinary just now in, in, uh, in the brief mention of Meister Eckhart, which I have been a student and my wife a student of Meister Eckhart for many, many years, we are the fingertips of God. And in that understanding that there is a an egoless part of our presence, and the ego is the fingertips pressing into the real, into the physical world. That's that, but but that's not who we are. Yes. And, and this gets me to to exploring uh, beyond near-death experiences. Uh, you have a quote from Plato in your book. No one knows whether death is really the greatest blessing a man can have, uh, <laughs> but they fear it is the greatest curse, yes. as if they knew it well. That's right. What you were bringing to this is story. Yeah. And aren't we our stories? That's what we are. We are God's stories. That's what I yeah, think. That we, we are, are the finger, fingertips of God. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. And you know what? Let me throw some more in this. Through, the, through the transformation study that we did in Seattle, uh, there were a number of things that really made us think, this is exposure to those fingertips. The near-death experience is an exposure to those. And and people are altered greatly uh, by even the briefest near-death experience. For example, we found that, that people who have near-death experiences have a decrease in death anxiety, substantial decrease. That they have a higher zest for living, which was defined as, as uh, being type A without the anger. Hey, that yeah. comes along exactly with another thing that Plato said in his old crotchety old age. He said, he said, you know, if you think about it realistically, a human life is not a very serious thing. 
He said, we are God's toys. <laughs> and he said, the best way of life is just to sort of play, play at it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the first things my wife said after she died to me. She said, this is all a game, Whitley. I've and heard I said, a game? And she said, it's a serious game, but it's a game. <laughs> yeah. So people also get, I'll finish this list of things that people, happens to people as a result of a near-death experience. One is, is that they, they seem to have a higher intelligence, that people kind of evolve into, into higher beings. And they also, which is, I think, most interesting to me, they have an increase in psychic abilities. We found that people who have near-death experiences, on the average, have four times as many verifiable psychic experiences as people who have not had a near-death experience. That's interesting, um, because the um, the other thing I discovered is that they they cease to have much fear of death, and you you touched on that, and that was certainly my, Anne's experience. She after her NDE, she wasn't afraid of death at all, and in fact, when she got a terminal brain tumor. She said, I want to die a conscious death, and I don't and I don't want to die it. I want to live it, Whitley, and you have to be the one who makes that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And I made sure that she was conscious as long as her body could be. And uh uh she uh, uh she was not in the even slightly afraid. <laughs> no, not at all. Life scares me, but not death. <laughs> you don't, well, want, <laughs> you don't want any pain in the process, though. That's the exception. Yeah. But, right. Well, I'll tell you, folks, just so the listeners know, what scares me is not life or death. It's allergies, and I'm having an allergy attack today. <laughs> that, that, that's nothing new. My listeners know I'm always having allergy attacks. Well, good company. Yeah, me too, Billy. And you know something, Willie, another thing I can pretty much guarantee that you have realized this, that I'm going to say yourself, although you might not have put it in these words. But have you noticed that since the 70s, the afterlife is coming down and infusing this life? There's not anymore the, the firm boundary that there was you think back to 1970 right well right. what's happened in the interim is there so because of the advent of cpr there's vast numbers of people sure. who's, who've been over there and back including some of them with the chronic heart problems that have been there and back a number of times over their life so that the afterlife partly due to the cpr technology is kind of infusing itself into this life because there's a lot of people here who are really kind of in their minds over there. And what what we have found in the books we've written, because we've written six books together, uh, is that over the years, you have more and more medical doctors who are having or are seeing near-death experiences and, sh and shared death experiences. And, uh, and it, when, when, Word of this kind of creeps into society from that side, from your from your trusted medical doctor. People really start to take uh, note of it more than they did in the past. 
Well, I'm a medical doctor, and that's why I was so long in coming to believe this. Well, that's true. But yeah, well, as it right? You know, it's like, I mean, I give up. There is, I can't think of any way out of saying that to my utter astonishment, there's an afterlife. I, If it isn't the afterlife, what is it? I don't know. And, you know, when you get to share death experiences, Raymond had a, uh, an event happen to him in, in Milan, Italy. He was at, speaking at a conference, and at the end of his talk, a medical doctor cornered him and, and said, uh, uh, I just had, I had a shared death experience just the other day. And he had done a minor surgery on a patient who had cardiac arrest. And he worked on him, worked on him to keep him alive. And this must have gone on for some time. And he was, he was ready to call it. He was ready to give up. And just as he was ready to, the man's wife ran in from the waiting room and she said, my husband just appeared to me. She had no idea that this was going on in the operating room. My husband just appeared to me and said, keep trying. I'm gonna, I can come back. My husband told me that you think he's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> keep on trying. <laughs> and, and so then when the doctor resuscitated the guy, that's the first thing that he told the doctor. And, you know, that's it was puzzled beyond belief. Actually. Out of it. The, uh, uh, I want to move on to precognitive precognitive experiences, which are a fascinating subtext Very much so. of this whole thing. And and I'm really opening the question to either of you, because you could both speak about it in slightly different in, in ways, which adds a nice dimensionality to the whole interview, uh, that uh, uh, tell us a little bit about this whole process of precognitive experiences uh, involving death in the afterlife. Well, I don't know. I don't know how I could talk about. Process. I, can, I can talk about it a little bit. Talk about you mentioned it in, you, you, there's the chapter in the book in about it. Yeah, when I was a kid, and you, I bet you probably had this experience too, Whitley, when you were a thinker. And, you know, I quickly figured out that something is wrong with the idea of time. <laughs> then when I became an undergraduate philosophy student, I heard if Aristotle said, what is time? He said, it's the parent, the past, the present and the future. But he said, the past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. And try holding on to the present. Time is, is something we act like we understand, but it's very enigmatic and incomprehensible. And my wife, Whitley, is is much smarter than me. She's very brilliant. Well, I have to be pretty smart. <laughs> she is just really brilliant. But, and, and thankfully for me, she's totally non-intellectual, right? She went to art school, studied fashion and broadcasting. So, you know, but but several years ago, my non-philosophical wife, was standing in the living room and just sort of looked far away and she said, time is not real. And I said, yeah, yeah, I figured that out too. But, you know, time is so bizarre. And um, in terms of the dying process, 
it does seem that as as you have talked to Eben Alexander, said just back to something you were saying earlier. It's I asked Eben one time. I said, "Over here, the axes by which we orient ourselves are time and space, but over there, there is no such thing thing as time or space. So, how do you orient yourself?" Yeah. And he said, "The axes are love and knowledge." That's how you orient yourself. But there's but there's an awful lot of moving parts when you get into something like precognition. I mean, I can give you, I'll give you a personal example, okay? Uh, years ago when, when my mother was dying, she was dying of Alzheimer's. And uh, on the Sunday that she died, I received a phone call from Vernon Nepi, who was the head of neuropharmacology at University of Washington. Vernon and I had worked on a book idea for some time, and then we uh, parted because we were both busy with other things. And I hadn't spoken to Vernon in five years. And Vernon calls me up on Sunday, and, and, he, and he says, you know, I was sitting here reading the newspaper, and uh, a voice told me, a female voice told me to call Paul Perry. So I ignored it. And he said, I kept reading the paper, and I got back to the sports section. And he said, this voice again said, call Paul Perry. So I'm calling you. I have no idea why I'm calling you. And and I told him that my mother was ill, and she had Alzheimer's. And he would be the perfect person to talk to because he was uh, the head of neuropharmacology. So he talked to me about a number of things he had tried uh, in, re- in I'll, I'll use the word, reviving. Uh, people who had had Alzheimer's, including electroshock therapy and different types of drugs. And he was saying, suggest these to your doctor because it's, you know, it's a last chance situation. In the meantime, I'm getting a call. So I said, okay, Vernon, I'll call you back. And I got a call from the care facility where my mother was, and they told me that she had just passed away. Now, the moving parts in this to me are, why would she ever contact Vernon? And uh, what did she expect? And why didn't she somehow, you know, she, you know, she did a very roundabout way of contacting me. But she didn't know Vernon, but she knew I had been working with him in the past. So to me, those are moving parts that are fairly unexplainable. Yeah. And, and you know, so many people, Whitley, and I'm sure you've heard this, hear the same things I do. It's like so many people. Just ordinary people just bumble into some kind of thing like that where they see they see something that unfold in the future. Oh my God! And and to a horror of in my life was in 1970. My wife was pregnant. It's like this was in June. We both awoke at the same time with the same dream that we were losing the baby. She was seeing my her part i was seeing mine and could i mean i won't go into detail but oh my god then 24 hours later it happened just like in the dream i mean i reality is just so completely bizarre and to get into the actual process of these uh it's very difficult because we don't really understand the, the the gears and the levers that make it happen yeah you know, part of my career was I was in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane. People like you read about in the National Enquirer who ground their mother and father up in a meat grinder. And so, he was not a patient, by the way. 
And you did. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I was dealing with the, you know, psychotic killers as a daily routine for, you know, quite a long time. And and so what I really finally came up to in that arrangement is that Whitley, and you must have felt this too, Whitley, that I'm surprised that more people aren't psychotic, given that, you know, this strange world we have to figure out and put together is a very stressful thing. It's like, and no wonder so many people take solace in some kind of simple-minded ideology or whatever you can't blame them but it's like to me it's just a lot more fun to face the fact that i don't know much of anything and uh, and you know i had that feeling when i looked through a telescope at age seven or eight and i've never had any reason to retract it or modify it yeah and you know you you oftentimes think well not too many people experience these but they do and the way you could actually find it, if if uh, if someone is a, out there as a good public speaker, they could stand up in a Denny's, yes, announce to people. Because I did this one time when I was first do my first book. I was working out with Raymond. Uh, I went to a movie with a number of friends, and we stopped at Denny's on the way back to have a meal, and we started talking about what we were doing, what we were doing in our lives. And when I talked about this with them. A good number of people at the table said, well, that's phony. That doesn't really happen. And so with a great amount of anger and courage, I stood up and announced to the 20 or so people in the Denny's what I do for a living and what I was currently working on. And I asked if they had had in their family or for themselves had had near-death experiences or had had shared death experiences. And out of the 20 people, 12 or 15 of those people not only said they had had things happen, but they were willing to talk about it. You know, it's a, an example of the fact that we are more than we tell ourselves that we are. But but we have, unfortunately, for our free dreamlanders, free listeners, we have come to the end of the first part of the show. And we will be continuing on talking about out-of-body experiences, and how it is that they indicate an afterlife. This very, very fascinating book, Proof of Life After Life, Empower Yourself. How do you do it? Well, you read The Seven Reasons to Believe There is an Afterlife. You listen to these two very convincing guys, Raymond Moody and Paul Perry, you're going to get somewhere. Let's get past the fear, because the fear is what is preventing us from what Raymond alluded to a little earlier, which is basically dropping the veil between the living and the dead and becoming a new kind of human being. Uh, so, Free Dreamlanders, thank you very much for being with us. And subscribers, we're going to keep right on keeping them. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>